how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. As a former critic, Andy Greenwald is known for his work on Entertainment Weekly, Spin, ESPN the Magazine, and the Washington Post, along with being the author of Miss Misery, a novel, and Nothing Feels Good, Punk Rock, Teenagers, and Emo. But he decided he no longer had the same passion for music, but really cared about the types of stories being told on TV. Sam Ismail, creator of Mr. Robot and Homecoming, reached out to see if he wanted if he had any other samples, so he sent over a spec script for Briar Pat. On the new USA series, Rosario Dawson stars Allegra Deal, an investigator who returns to her hometown in Texas to try and solve the mysterious death of her sister, a police officer who died in a car bombing. In this interview, which is also available on the Creative Screenwriting website, Greenwald discusses lessons he learned from Ismail, how to expose genre, what he loves about the surrealist world of Twin Peaks, how his career as a critic influenced his showrunner position, and why screenwriters need to take big swings and make risky artistic choices. You know, uh, I basically um, had been, you know, writing uh, for magazines and writing books and things in New York and, you know, starting back from about 10 years ago, and I was working on writing a third book when uh, Josh Schwartz, uh, who would be, I'd become friendly with, the guy who created The O.C. and all those other TV shows, um, reached out because he was doing a web series for Warner Brothers when Warner Brothers was launching the WB. It was going to be a web network, which kind of dates what year this was, I think. Uh, and he asked if I wanted to contribute something on spec to that, and I thought that sounded like fun. It was you know set in the world of music, which had been what I'd been writing about, and did a script for that, and I, I loved the experience, and they accepted it and asked me to do another one, and the other one had already been broken. It was the penultimate episode, and so I had sort of slotted into their plot, and I enjoyed that even more, and so I realized this is something that interested me a lot more than I would realized, and so I took my uh, the third book I was sort of struggling with, and I, I turned it into a spec script, and I got an agent, and then did absolutely everything the wrong way, and didn't move to L.A., and <laughs> didn't put myself out there. So I was sort of having a few years of, of, you know, trying to get something moving in that 
arena while still freelancing and writing, writing and writing more about TV for places like Vulture and a couple other spots and realizing that while I had sort of grown tired of writing about music because I didn't care so much about the chords that were being played, I really cared about TV and particularly, um, you know, I really cared about how story got made and, and the process. And all of this was kind of like a light bulb moment considering in one a long time coming, considering I used to read TV guides for the articles. I mean, I, I, I'd always had this interest, but kind of didn't put two and two together. Um, all of this both got delayed and sped up by the creation of Grantland in, in 2011. Um, you know, a lot of my friends were involved in the founding of it, like Chuck Klosterman and Chris Ryan, and they reached out and uh, I actually had some reservations foolishly, um, but agreed to contribute and wrote, you know, had a piece up about HBO the day the site launched and wrote every day that first year and sort of became the TV critic. And at that point I felt it was a church and state thing. So I had to put aside the creative uh, impulse, but actually found my, you know, found it to be incredibly fulfilling to be a part of a site like that. And, you know, I, I loved writing about TV and I loved getting a chance to kind of you know, meet and speak to, whether it was an interview or the podcast, speak to the people who I was admiring and learn how the sausage really was made. So that by the end of my time there, I had kind of realized that I wanted to uh, give it another shot. Um, and so I had intended to, my contract was ending in um, November of 2015. And I was going to, I told them I was not going to re-up. I was going to leave and, and work on maybe getting a spec script. And a month before that, I had Noah Hawley on the podcast, and I'd never met him before or had any interaction with him. And we had a perfectly decent and you know pleasant interview. And then uh, he somehow got my number and called me uh, a, a, a couple of days later and asked if I had any interest in helping him adapt a Kurt Vonnegut novel. And I said, yes, yes, I do. Um, it's you know it was an incredible opportunity, and it really hit fast forward. Um, so I went out and was in a mini room for, for that with one other writer, a writer who ended up joining me on the staff of Briar Patch. Um, and then at the end of those two weeks, he asked me to come onto the staff of the first season of Legion, which was also, a, you know, a really eye-opening and, and educational experience. And, um, you know, by, by 2016, I realized I had to move out here because I did want to pursue it. And we moved out here and, and my, my agent said, you know, everyone here knows you as a critic. Um, you need a new sample to reintroduce yourself as a writer why don't you take one of those books you're always talking about? Don't worry about the rights or anything, which, you know, was maybe not the best, in some ways the best and in other ways, not the best advice. Um, for whatever reason, because there was no pressure, um, and I had been thinking about Briar Patch in a lot of different ways and what I would love to do with it for years. Um, it was the best, most purely creative writing experience in my life up to that point. And so I wrote the pilot much as you ended up seeing it in about two and a half weeks. And, um, uh, Sam Esmail had been interested in bringing me onto a project he was doing and his producing partner, Chad Hamilton wisely asked if I had any samples before hiring me. And, uh, a day after I'd turned in Briar Patch to my agents, they passed it along to Chad who passed it along to Sam who wanted to do it. And it was a dream come true. And of course, then we found out that Paramount owned the rights. And so then, it hit. then I learned a lot more about the other side of the business, but that's a very long winded version of how, uh, how we ended up where we are today. As you were a critic, what were some, are there any certain rules you kind of learned or start to follow or knew you would possibly use if you ever got to write a series? Um, sure. I think there are a couple. Um, couple I think one was, as I neared the end of my time as a critic, was when, you know, streaming was really exploding and there were suddenly, you know, 400, 500, now I think like 600 original series on every year. And I really began to think of my role differently with one of the reasons why I kind of got disillusioned with it was 
basically there were too many shows to cover anything in terms of, you know, with any sort of feeling of consensus or certainly even to cover everything. And I sort of felt my job becoming more like more akin to a wealth management consultant where viewers had a certain amount of hours as their currency and they wanted to invest them well. And so I was just advising them on good investments, you know, and that, that, that period really made me appreciate how precious people's time is and how many shows there are. And so it really encouraged me, certainly along with the mentors I had in Noah Hawley and Sam Esmail, not to take any opportunity for granted and to go for it and to make the biggest choices you could possibly make, take the biggest swings, um, take the riskier artistic choices, make the riskier artistic choices. And, and, and also above all else, and this was always kind of intrinsic to how I understood TV to entertain, you know, I think people watch TV in a very specific way, different from movies and that it's so intimate. It comes into our homes and people really respond to a feeling of community in what they watch, even if it's a community of ne'er-do-wells or people they would never actually want to meet or be with, you know, on something like, as in something like the Sopranos, for example. So, Realizing that if I had the opportunity, I didn't want to squander it um, by playing it safe was really paramount um, in how I approached it. I think the other thing was just, you know, having enough perspective on the industry and coming in sideways to be able to watch how different people worked and hear the stories of people from all different sides of production, whether they were actors or writers or directors or showrunners or executives, and kind of have a vision for how I hoped to run things if I was ever given the chance. And basically that would be in a, you know, a kind and humane and collaborative way. Um, in whatever profession I was in, I didn't really have much tolerance for the, um, you know, the brilliant asshole. So I had an idea that we could run, we could make this show and do our best and, you know, leave it all on the field, but also have families and have a good time, um, and leave the, the sort of pettiness, uh, on the side. And, you know, that was really important to me. And I think that was hopefully, I, I mean, at least I, in, in my ex- sense, the perception of the experience that was, that was proved possible and, and was shared by a lot of people, which is really valuable to me. So in this show in particular, I'm really interested in uh, the setting, but beyond that, I mean, the really the world building aspects of the loose animals and the, and the stylized versions, how did you really make it your own? Like you said, you are competing with 600 other shows and kind kind of in the Mr. Robot world, but not really. Like I guess that that branch of USA, you would say, with Sammy Smell. But what is this world you kind of created through through this adaptation? You know, I think any of us in whatever field we're in really are the walking, talking, writing embodiments of everything that we've ingested and loved. So, you know, I kind of am the sum total of my influences and passions and things that I love and. You know, I love, um, I mean, Twin Peaks was a formative experience for me when I was in middle school and really kind of sort of taught me about what art could be and, you know, the range of emotions that you could put into something. Um, I also love the comedies of Mike Schur, which are about, you know, about community and about um, entertainment a different way. And so um, I I was pretty, you know, there's a, I have a pretty long track record of what what moves me and what I think TV could and should be in my writing. And so one of the nice things about the opportunity I had was that I think everybody knew what motivated me and what mattered to me. Um, at no point was I pressured by anyone, whether it was Sam or anyone at the studio or the network to deviate in any way from my vision, which is incredibly rare and fortunate. So, um, you know, the, the, the tone of the show 
was there from the beginning, you know, and, and, and the only question Sam asked me on that, you know, is it the fall day in 2016, if you can believe it, um, after he read it was, I just have to ask you, is it, it's supposed to be funny, right? I said, yes, yes, it's supposed to be funny. And he said, okay, good. I love it. Um, so I felt very, you know, supported and secure in, in making this sort of tightrope of shows that hopefully at its best can be both, um, stylized and emotional, um, dramatic and funny, um, thrilling and absurd. And so I'm not really sure what box we fit into other than the one that we hopefully built ourselves. What can you add about just making fun characters? I mean, you, you, it looks like something like this gives the marketing team a lot to work with. They're very specific, very unique characters. Uh, when I first saw the trailer, it reminded me of Bad Times at El Royale a little bit from a few years ago. Um, how did you just kind of wrap that all in there and make them so distinct when there's so much television, so much movies being consumed? Well, one thing, of course, I mean, we haven't talked about it, is I have to credit Ross Thomas. I mean, he's my favorite novelist. And one of the reasons why he is my favorite novelist is because characters poured out of him like uh, I, I, I've walked myself into a terrible metaphor. I, <laughs> they poured out of him like like, like carbon dioxide. I don't know what pours out of somebody. He, he it was it seemed almost effortless the way he could just create unique, compelling, funny, charismatic, competent characters. And so, you know, I had incredible characters to work with, like you know, ones that I, that came from the book, like like Jake Spivey or Harold Snow. Then there were other characters who just presented opportunity to me on the page, like Cindy McCabe, who has a relatively small role in the book. But when we had an actress like Allegra Edwards just you know, took off or um, characters we we invented out of whole cloth, like Eve Raytek. Um, the thing that that motivated me and really was one of the most rewarding parts of the whole experience was, you know, I, I really believe there are no small parts. Um, I am in love with every character on the show. Um whether it's Allegra Dill, who's obviously in almost every frame, or it's someone like Ginger Galanti, who's the news reporter we created, played by this fantastic local actress named Sarah Minich, who was just so game for anything we threw at her and really carved out screen time and with the, and created a memorable character, memorable character just by her being game for everything and, and being such a great performer. And now is you know doing this this podcast that's accompanying the show Zootown. Um, there was no everyone in the writer's room had a different favorite character and our excitement to write for each character and give them, you know, both uh, range and dignity. And then also in, in, even in very small ways, give them an arc, um, you know, was really thrilling, I think from a writing perspective. And then I, I'd like to think it was really gratifying and exciting from an acting perspective. Um, when I talked to someone like Christine Woods, who's just so brilliant in everything she does and, took this character again that we created uh, was not in the book Lucretia Colder and just got her and understood her and imbued her with so much extra life and personality and just took it to a level we could never have uh, dreamed about. It, it was the greatest kind of collaboration and, and synergy. Um, so that was also, and that also speaks to the, you know, I think the way I, I, I approach an adaptation, which is like, let's take what's true and exciting and what we love about something. And then let's crack it open because it's not a book and it's not the book that was written 30 plus years ago. So in the novel Briarpatch, um, Ian Colder mentions his wife, the dialogue that's in the show where he's like, I'm married to a bitch, blah, blah, blah. But she basically haunts the book like Bertha and Jane Eyre. Like she's never there. She's just some crazy lady. And so we were like, well, for making in 2020, she has to be a character. 
and she's probably a you know kind of a femme fatale, honestly. So who could that be? And then we just sort of built and built in there, and we felt like we were using these wonderful bones, but we could you know add all this other weird blood and muscle and sinew to them, and so we ended up with characters that we and hopefully the marketing team love. What other kind of freedom do you feel with the characters? Do you feel you've got some leeway in this kind of uh, the detective thriller genre to make them more extreme than real people? Like, do you still also focus on grounding them in relationships? Like, what are kind of your um, ra- range of character, I guess? I I think the really exciting thing to me about genre is the ability to to both play with it and poke at it and you know, expose the humanity lying underneath. So if you take something like noir, you know, one of the things that's appealing about it and universal about it and that people are excited to tune in to see is you want to see cool, sexy, competent people who wear the right clothes, who have the right comebacks, um, who know what to order at the bar and know how to pick a lock and have this very particular set of skills. And I love that stuff. So I wanted to service it. But what's really thrilling about doing it both in our present day and doing it over 10 episodes as opposed to one movie is you can crack at their armor, the costumes they wear like armor, and you know reveal the emotion and the humanity that's motivating them to behave that way. Um, so that was really the opportunity for me. You know, over 10 episodes, when you meet Allegra Dill, she's, a, she's Humphrey Bogart. You know, she's hard-boiled. She's like an iceberg, that everything is under the surface. Um, but we have 10 episodes to push past that. Why is she like that? What, what, is the emotionally grounding, what are the emotionally grounding events in her life that caused her to build, up, to build those walls? And then let's you know, use everything in our arsenal to knock those walls down. And hopefully, I, I will be more gratified um, if at the end of these 10 episodes, people feel like we told um, an emotional story. Than if they say, "Oh, that was a you know a riveting whodunit," honestly, but hopefully we service both. What else has kind of changed about maybe your viewpoints of making a series or making movies versus when you were a critic? I've noticed like you you spent a lot of time on Twitter answering fan questions and that kind of thing. How do you kind of see that the critic and interviewer relationship now? Um, well, one thing is you know no one is ever going to think about this show as much as I am. No one's ever going to see all the things that I see, whether they are things that I'm proud of or mistakes, you know um and so that's okay. you know, my experience making the show, well, I think it's part of my job or role or whatever you want to call it, is to illuminate as much of it as possible for people who are interested uh, and I'm very excited to share you know, share tours of the sausage factory, so to speak, if people are interested in how it gets made. Um, I also very much feel that a lot of the joy of this for me came before it aired in terms of, you know, experiences in the room with the writers or on a scout with a production designer and DP or, you know, laughing with the actors or whatever. It, It really was about the process in a way that's kind of separate from the result, which is what a lot of interviews end up being about. And that's okay. You know, I'm sort of open to that now um, in, a, in, a, in a different way. So you mentioned you kind of had some freedom from the network. Was there any specific advice that you got from uh, Sandy's mail that might kind of help other people as well? You know, I, I think it goes back to the thing I was saying earlier about don't make the safe choice. You know, there, there was something that was really powerful that happened with Sam where he loved the script and he wanted to produce it. 
and wanted me to think about where it could go and what the season was like and what potentially future seasons should we get the opportunity would be like. And, you know, and he was saying this to me, a person that he knew as a critic who had been championing, you know, risk, bold risk-taking moves and, you know, different kinds of more malleable storytelling on TV. And what was interesting was initially when he said that to me, because it was my my opportunity, my ass on the line, I suddenly became pretty conservative and I pitched uh, a version of the show where Allegra Dill gets into even more hijinks in season two and falls further into a life of crime or deceit or whatever. And he looked at me and he was like, why would you do that? Why would two things happen to her? That's ridiculous. And I realized that I, you know, when I, when I, it was my time at that and I, I, and I went, um, that's, he was right. Like, let's make the bolder choice and let's tell the whole story and let's not hide behind anything. And, and I think that that's something that he, that's a drum that he beats loudly and frequently. And it's actually been incredibly, um, obviously helpful on a personal and professional level, but also kind of inspiring knowing that when we try something big, that's when he's going to be happiest. So whether it's the montage at the end of episode two, um, or a sequence that I won't, spoil yet that opens episode nine, I felt pretty confident making a bold choice because I knew that he he would probably like those parts best. And that is our show. Thanks again for tuning in. If it's your first time, make sure to hit that subscribe button on SoundCloud or iTunes. Also check out the new video essay series on YouTube called Creative Principles and give us a review. That's one of the best ways to help share these interviews. Thanks again.